I'd like for you to turn to the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Preach a sermon this morning on the stewardship of talents. This is a familiar parable. In fact, it is probably the most preached parable of any of the New Testament parables. I've preached on it three times myself. And I know that familiarity often breeds indifference. But I want to try to come at this from a fresh approach because the parable of the talents, what, the, what John 3.16 is to the gospel of salvation, this parable is to the gospel of stewardship. And I want to read beginning in verse 14 this familiar parable. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Notice his possessions to them. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. You know what happened to the one with the five, to the one with the two. I want to pick up at verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I know that you... I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, went away, and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away." I think we reach a point in our Christian life where we have to answer, where we, we have to stop asking the question, what, do I, what can I receive or what more can I get from the Lord? And we have to answer the question, what am I going to do with what I have already received from the Lord? You see, I think our, the, the real issue is not... How can I get more talent and more ability, more truth and more knowledge, more opportunity? But the critical issue is, what am I going to do with what I already have received? A person came up to me not long ago and said, I'm so glad you're preaching this series on stewardship because we need to be taught how to be stewards of our time and possession and our money. I'm really not sure that that's really what we need. How many sermons have you heard on stewardship? If you've been a Christian for 40 years, and some of us have, if you've been a Christian for 40 years and you've spent an average of two hours a week in a church, that's a pretty conservative estimate, I guess, when you consider Sunday school and church and church training and evening service and brotherhood and mission organizations and Wednesday night prayer meeting and revivals and retreats and Falls Creek. But if you spent two hours a week in church and you've been a Christian for 40 years, you know how many hours you spent in church? 
44,160 hours. Probably seems a lot longer than that. I mean, you spent five hours of your life in a church. How much have you learned concerning stewardship during that time? I'm convinced that our problem is not that we don't have enough knowledge. Our problem is that we're not doing what we should be doing with the knowledge we have. For God doesn't give knowledge to put in your pocket and use like change when you need it. And He doesn't give truth like an ornament to be hung on the wall. And so we get our uh, outlines, you know, our, we got our sermon outline and our, our art of service and we put that on the refrigerator and we look at it from time to time. We may even get a tape of the sermon and listen to that several times. But you see, God doesn't give us truth as an ornament to be hung on the refrigerator. He gives us truth to be obeyed. And what this parable is about is this, that Christ has a right to expect a particular response to what you have received from Him. Yes, even demand that of you. And what this parable is about is about what a person's going to do with what he has received from God. He's either going to obey that and use it for God, or he's going to do nothing and become an unprofitable servant. The word is called, the word he translates unprofitable is a word that means useless. And what he's saying is this, that if you're not doing what God wants you to do with the life and the abilities He has given you, you are useless to Him. It's what the parable of the potter and the clay involves. For they both benefit, both the potter and the clay, both the Savior and the sinner benefit when the clay is obedient and responsive and pliable to the, to the potter's plan and hand. The potter gains a useful vessel, an expression of his purpose and design, and the clay gains purpose and meaning and usefulness. A use, he becomes a useful vessel in the hand of his master so that we both benefit. That's why God saved you. He didn't save you in order that you might benefit. He saved you in order that He might get glory. For He saved you unto Himself. And that means that He saved you in order that He might have a vessel, an instrument, that He could get benefit or glory thereby. Now there are three tremendous truths that just uh, seep through the pores of this parable. I want you to get them. Just simple truths. You might want to jot them down, not so you can put them on your refrigerator. Well, so you can see what we're supposed to do in the stewardship of talents. The first is this, that you and I cannot escape, we cannot escape the responsibility of doing something with what God has given us. We're called servants in this passage. The word is doulos, and it means that we are absolutely bound to the will of the Master and we have a responsibility that we cannot escape. Now I need to lay down some definition, a definition of talents. We've heard that word all of our life. In this passage, talents represents the ability and the opportunity to bring God benefit. Now notice... It is a two-sided coin and it's ability and opportunity, two sides. 
For you can have an ability and not have the opportunity, or you can have an opportunity and not have the ability. If you've been anywhere on planet Earth for the last two months, you've heard about the NFL football strike. And, and these mainstream players went on strike, and so they brought in the replacements, the scabs. And for about a month there, these guys got on television and they said, Now, we've just been waiting for our opportunity. We know we have the ability to play in NFL. We just haven't had an opportunity. We're so glad to get the opportunity. When the strike was over, the owners got on television and they said, These guys don't really have the ability to play in the NFL. Now they've had an opportunity, but they don't have the ability. You can have an ability and not have an opportunity. You can have an opportunity and not have an ability. A talent is God's gift to you of an ability and an opportunity to bring Him glory. So this is the definition of a talent. It is a special endowment from God, an ability that God has bestowed upon you in stewardship that you might bring Him glory. Now let me quote you a verse of Scripture you've heard all your life. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let me ask you a question. Do you know something that you can do, and you have an opportunity to do it, that will bring glory to God that you're not doing? Do you have an ability and an opportunity to do something that would benefit the Father and you're not doing it, then you're living in sin if you can say yes to that question. Maybe that's why your prayers aren't getting above your head. Maybe that's why this book is a dead book. Maybe that's why you don't have power in witness and with your family. Because if you have an ability and an opportunity to do something that will bring God glory and you're not doing it, you're living in sin. We cannot escape that responsibility. A monk came to Mother Teresa who was of her order and complained about all these menial tasks he was being given. He said, my vocation is to work with lepers. I want to work with lepers. That's my vocation. Mother Teresa said to him gently but firmly, My son, your vocation is to belong to Jesus. Your vocation and mine, your responsibility and mine is to belong to Jesus, is to do what God has gifted us to do for His glory. With knowledge comes responsibility. With light comes accountability. Havner was right. A man will not be judged by the act he commits, but by the light he has neglected. There is a second truth. The second truth is this that we have no excuse for doing nothing with our gift. No excuse. Now, we may think we have some excuses. This man said, I was afraid. Afraid of what? Most people, most commentators say he was afraid he would fail. That's no excuse. For God has not caused, called us to be successful, only to be faithful. You're a failure only when you do nothing. We think we have excuses. So did Jessica Hahn. Now she said the reason why she posed in the nude in Playboy was because God showed her this rainbow and told her it was all right. If you buy that, 
I want to sell you some beachfront property in Iowa. We have all kinds of excuses. Charles Colson said that we have an infinite capacity to justify every act, and so we do. It's called by the psychologist a self-serving bias. Now, I think I have an excuse for doing nothing, but I have a self-serving bias. The question is, does God think I have an excuse for doing nothing? The answer is no. Now, there are two reasons why we have no excuse to, for doing nothing with our gift, our talent, our ability and opportunity. The first is found in verse 15. He said... I'm giving you a talent each according to his own ability. So the first reason there is no excuse is because of the ability of the recipient. Now watch this carefully. God will never ask of you a responsibility that you're not able to complete, to do. He'll never overload you. Now some people will. Some pastors will, they'll overload you, but God will never give you a responsibility that He does not give you the ability to accomplish. He will never overload you. He will never give you any more light than you can live up to. So if you have to say, my neighbor next door, my, my friend has more not light, more knowledge of the Word of God, well, what, what is happening there is, is that God is measuring to you your ability to obey. Because God is not going to give you more light than you can live up to. So if God gives you a responsibility, that is His promise that you can accomplish the responsibility. Really, the only re reason we don't, He says in the text, is that we're lazy. I mean, the real reason that folks do nothing with their gift when you draw the bottom line and add it all up and get down to the nitty-gritty is that we are too lazy to put out the effort. There is a second reason why there is no excuse, not only because of the ability of the recipient of the gift, but because of the adequacy of the gift itself. Now watch this. When the master came back, he said to the slave, to the servant, he said, why didn't you just take that talent and put it in the bank? And it in the bank would have gained interest. Now, I hope you can see what that means. It means that there is an inherent power in the gift itself that guarantees its success. And as I looked at this, I was amazed to discover that the success of these talents and the reproduction has little to do with the skill of the recipient of the talent and much to do with the power that is inherent in the talent itself. Now watch this. For a long time I had a real problem with the fact that some guys would get up in pulpits, some evangelists or preachers, Great revival meetings. I, I, I wonder what's going on there. How could God use somebody like that? And I came to this discovery that the power is in the gift itself. And when a man is willing to exercise the gift, God blesses the gift. 
Now, what I'm saying is not that, you know, just the worst kind of scallywag in all the world God can use. I'm not saying that. I'm saying is that what God is looking for is not a bunch of super folks that have these marvelous talents and abilities. He's just looking for some people for earthen vessels that will be the, the recipient of His gift and will just allow His gift to go to work. See? What God wants from us is just a willingness for Him to give us the power and the ability to get glory to Himself. He's just looking for some earthen vessels to bless, you see. No excuse. There is one last truth in this text. Notice this. That we will one day give an account for doing nothing. We will give an account for doing nothing. I guess we don't really believe that. I, I, I'm assuming, I assume that if a person really believed that he was someday stand before God and be accountable for how he has lived his life and what he has done with God's gift to him, that he would be very, very sensitive and serious about how he lived his life. Evidently, we don't really believe that we're ever going to have to give an account. C.S. Lewis once said that a man who lives the most for heaven is usually the one who leaves the earth a better place. What he's saying is this, that the person who has a sensitivity to the fact that there is an accounting beyond this life is the person who is going to do the most with this life. Now, the reason why it's so important in this accounting is two reasons. The first is... Because doing nothing is wicked. That's what he said, wicked. You know how many times Jesus used that word? You'd have to search a lot of places a long time to ever find, you'd be hard-pressed to ever find Jesus use the word wicked. He used it often, most often, as he talked about the devil. Wicked, he called him. And he used that word for the man who had been forgiven a great debt and would not forgive a lesser debt. He called him wicked, the unforgiving man. But you're not going to find that word often in the Bible, wicked, because it is a word that is reserved for the worst kind. I thought, well, what I'm going to do this week, I'm going to get the newspaper down, I'm going to find every time the word wicked is used in the newspaper. And the newspaper usually gives us bad news, right? I did not find the word one single time. It is a word that describes the worst sort. Now we get all worked up and we scream without the top of our voices at those things about which Jesus scarcely ever raised His voice. And what Jesus condemned vehemently, we often consider a virtue. I mean, we, we, we think it's a virtue that we don't drink or smoke or chew or go with the girls, what do? Let me tell you who He described as wicked. He described that person who has received from God an ability and an opportunity and has done nothing with it. He's wicked. He's wicked. It is just like a person 
a research scientist who discovers the cure for AIDS and he puts that formula in his pocket and he walks out of the laboratory and tells nobody, would you call him wicked? It's like that watchman on the tower who sees the Japanese coming into Pearl Harbor to bomb the daylights out of the Americans and he turns around, walks away and says nothing. You call him wicked? A person who has been a gifted and has an opportunity and does nothing wicked. And so Jesus condemned the fig tree not because it brought forth bad fruit, but because it brought forth no fruit. And he told the parable of the Good Samaritan not to condemn the thieves who beat the man and took his possessions, but to rebuke the priest and the Levite who did nothing about his suffering. Wicked. Now, if the Bible says that a man is wicked who does nothing, does that man stand in judgment? It's a terrifying thing. The book of Proverbs says that a man who is slack in his responsibility is a brother to him him who destroys. He's a brother to a murderer. The second reason why this accounting is so serious is because to do nothing is wasteful. Now what this parable is about is this that the man who takes his gift and opportunity and he does what the master wants him to do with it, it grows and it reproduces and it multiplies. But the man who does nothing loses it. And he says, he says, you take that one talent and give it to the man who has five, who had five. For the man who has been faithful in his stewardship of his talent, he'll have more. And the man who does nothing will lose what he had. You take your arm and you strap it to your side and it will atrophy. You lose it. You have the ability to pray and the opportunity to pray and you don't. You'll lose it, that privilege, that opportunity, that power. In fact, in in South America or in African countries, I'm told that they fix little prayer places, distances from their village And when they see, when a Christian brother sees his brother in in negligence of his prayer, he'll say to him, weeds are growing on your prayer path. It's wasteful. Now I've had, I've heard some things lately about waste. I've even heard my name being used in it. That we waste, waste paper, all this stuff we send out. Periodicals we mail out. That we waste money down in the kitchen, that we waste supplies in the supply room, that we waste money through the budget. Now it's my turn to talk about waste. Let me tell you what's really wasted in the church. It's these empty choir chairs right back here when men and women have been gifted with the ability to sing. That's waste. It's when we come together on Monday night for visitation and witnessing and some of you have been gifted with a gift of evangelism and you're not there. That's the waste. 
It's all of these Sunday school classes that we have. We can't get teachers to teach. And some of you have the ability to teach. Now the opportunity, and you're not doing it. That's the waste. It's a congregation of people who have been endowed and gifted from God who are doing nothing. That's the waste. For the waste is to take what God has given us and have an ability and an opportunity and to do nothing with it. Have you seen that American Airlines commercial where the coach gets his football team in at halftime and they're all muddy and you know, all bloody. They've been out there in the war in the trenches. You know, it's halftime. He's giving his halftime talk. He says to them, he says, we're, we're blocking like sisters. And he jumps on one guy. Then he slams his fist into the locker, locker door there. And he says, tell me how they're getting to our quarterback. And this, this old guy got mud all over him. He said, coach. Aren't we ahead 21 points? And the coach says, that's the problem. That's the trouble. When you stop caring as a player, we're finished as a team. That's the problem. When you stop caring as a steward, we're finished as a church. And a lady came up to Dwight L. Moody one day and said to him, If I couldn't do any better than that, you murdered the king's English. What a lousy sermon. If I couldn't do anything any better than that, I would quit. And Dwight L. Moody asked her the question that every one of us has to answer. Lady, what are you doing? with what you have. There comes a point in the life of every Christian where he has to stop asking the question, what more can I get from the Lord? More knowledge, more ability, more talent, more opportunity. And he has to answer the question, what am I going to do with what I already have? Let's pray together. Father, we know that it is a serious matter to become a child of God, to be given responsibility within that childhood and servanthood. I pray, God, that somehow you would prick a sensitive place in our heart about what you want us to do with our life. And I pray, God, that we will become profitable to you. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now look here, would you? There are three invitations. This morning, we had, in our early service, we had a family of five people who expressed a desire to, to be baptized, who placed their life into our fellowship as candidates for baptism. Two of those people I led to Christ this week.
You've had enough knowledge of what it means to be saved if you've heard one sermon, one gospel sermon. How much does it take for a child to be saved? Just the faith of a child. Would you come this morning, if you're lost, if you've never trusted Christ, to take the gift of salvation, the opportunity to be saved, and trust your heart and life to Jesus Christ? There may be some this morning who need to join the church. We can stay out on the periphery and the fringe, but God wants us in the middle of the action where He's called His people to serve and to live and to worship and to to witness. Or maybe you need to come to say, Pastor, I've been doing nothing. I want to commit my life to be what God wants me to be, to do with what I have, what God wants me to do with what I have. We're going to sing two or three stanzas for you to come. Would you come like these that came this morning in the first service? Let their coming be an inspiration to you while we stand to sing.